We'll take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 16, and we will finish up today our study of the book of Mark. It's been more than two years since we began this book, and I am both excited at what's coming next and also deeply, deeply, deeply affected that it'll be a while before we say open your Bibles to the book of Mark yet again. As you're turning to the book of Mark, I want to read a passage to you from the book of Ephesians just to set something in our mind and just to talk to you specifically and briefly pastorally. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says, God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. One of the roles of the elder or leader of the church is not only to be pastoral and care for the flock, but it's also to be a teacher. This morning, what we're going to do is going to more resemble a classroom than a sermon, and that's okay because that's in keeping with God, God's Word and what we should do to respond to God's Word, that this is a teaching and an equipping time. Well, with that, we now look at the ending of the book of Mark. I've titled this teaching, this class, it's hard to call it a sermon, the question mark at the end of Mark. If you'll notice, first and foremost, after verse 8, something happens. In all of your translations, the next verse that begins in verse 9 all the way down to verse 20 is marked off by brackets or, and or, it has a notation, a footnote at the bottom. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But I want to read this section just to put it in our minds so that as we talk about it, you're going to have a reference for this text. Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Now, after he had risen on early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went out and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported it to others, but they did not believe them either. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed, has been baptized, shall be saved, and has been baptized, shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned." These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent, out through, sent them out through all east and west, the sacred 
and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. As I said, there are times in the life of the church when I need to change hats from pastor, preacher to instructor and teacher, and that will be the case this morning. I, I will confess that as I was thinking about this all week, I was just praying about this last night and this morning, I was just, it was one of those odd Sundays when I thought, oh God, this would be a great Sunday for us to have no visitors because they would look at what we're doing and saying, that is an odd, odd approach to preaching and teaching. Shortly after my conversion, back as a junior in high school, I was given a new Bible by my mom. It was a blue, leather, Ryrie study Bible. Here it is. This is a treasure and a bit of a... uh, Uh, a nostalgic piece for me. I have tabs on it that have long since lost their ability to even say what what they mark. They are, uh, it is faded. It is really almost literally worn out. This was the Cape Canaveral of my Christian experience. This is where it started. And I looked through here. I, I was really, it's really amazing to look back at this Bible because I think there's more underlined than not which takes away any significance of underlining anything, if it's all underlined. But this is really the, in a sense, my biography as a new believer. Well, as I was given this Bible by my mom, um, the first thing I did is what my youth pastor told me to do, which was to start with the New Testament and to read through. I read Matthew, and it was a treat. I read Mark, and I liked Mark. Summary, fast-paced. And then I came to the last page of Mark. And I noticed something I had never noticed before. My new eyes were reading the scriptures with a new and fresh awareness that I had never experienced previous. And I noticed something. Beginning at verse 9, in my Bible, I'm looking at it, and I remember it just like it was yesterday. I remember seeing... There's a bracket around verse 9 extending down into verse 20. There's a notation there at the end, not in the best and earliest manuscripts. Not in the best and earliest manuscripts. That was a jolt to me. That was an arresting moment. I remember where I was sitting room downstairs in our basement in Chattanooga, Tennessee when I read that and the anxiety that just swelled up in my stomach was overwhelming. I still feel it. That led me on my first study ever of how we got our Bible, what is to be included, what is to be excluded, and why. Those early months of studying this, and praise God, I was given the right kind of resources, Bruce Metzger being the the primary one who's the leading textual critic of our generation. I began studying in a very immature way these last verses in the book of Mark. And I can tell you that the conclusions that God led me to then are the same conclusions that I have even this morning. A little background. The Old Testament was written in 
predominantly Hebrew with some small sections in Aramaic, which is kind of a cousin to Hebrew. It's kind of like Latin and um, uh, Spanish. Uh, Their cousin language, even today, Italian and Spanish, they, they're very close. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek, not classical, which was a more erudite, sophisticated language. It was the lingua franca. It was the, the language of the day, Koine Greek. Also, you need to know that the Bible was not written, I don't think this is any surprise, as one volume. It is 66 individual books that have been canonized or come together or recognized as having intrinsic authority in each one of these books which make up our Bibles. The genius of God in the production of the Bible is stunning. How the Bible came together gives me the greatest confidence that it is indeed a divine book as much as anything internal, the external forces that brought it together are astonishing. Think about this. The genius of God in putting this book together. If there was only one copy or a very few copies of any of these individual books, it would be easy for someone to raise their hand and question their authenticity. Instead of doing that, God did something unique with the Bible that is unprecedented in the production of any other book. In every one of these individual books of the Bible, there are dozens, hundreds, and sometimes thousands of copies of each one of them. Because of these copies being sent out literally around the world, all of the individual books in the Old Testament, all of the individual books in the New Testament, the fact that they were sent all over the known world at that time, and they all still corroborate the same exact text, is genius because no one could ever accuse anyone of a forgery. Way too much corroboration from way too many portions in the world. We have thousands of copies of copies that create a reliable breadcrumb trail back to the original documents. Those original documents you'll read or hear are called autographs. So if you talk about the original autographs, that's what we're talking about. Brian Edwards writes this. It is a straightforward matter of fact that there is no piece of ancient literature so well attested as the Bible or with copies that are closer to the original autographs. This includes, among many others, the works of Plato, Sophocles, Euripides, Aristotle, and Caesar himself. The earliest manuscripts we have for any of these are from at least 1,200 years after the author's death. Compared with the documents of the New Testament, for example, they are dated to within a few decades of Christ's death, end quote. That leads us to talk just for a minute about what scholars term the study of textual criticism. Textual criticism. It's also called lower criticism in the books that you may read. It's the study of the ancient texts and manuscript copies that we have of the Bible books, and it attempts to discover the best and most accurate texts to translate. Well, as we look at textual criticism, which text do we have, which ancient Greek text in particular do we have, which copies of the book of Mark we have in particular, 
No New Testament passage has generated as much attention in the realm of textual criticism as Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now, let me give you the conclusion here in the introduction, okay? As indicated in your Bibles with brackets and probably footnotes, I agree with the overwhelming scholarship that these verses are not a part of Mark's original gospel. The simple evidence is that these 12 verses are not found in our two oldest manuscripts, the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus. Those are the two oldest complete copies of the New Testament that we have. These verses, these last 12 verses, are in neither of them. Neither are they in most of the earlier individual copies of Mark's gospel. If you rewind way back, Jerome, who was preparing the Latin Vulgate on which all translations subsequent were based, he said this, quote, Almost all the Greek copies do not have this concluding portion of Mark, end quote. So how did it get there? Why is it there? And why does it matter? Well, first of all, let me raise the problem, if I can. Um, uh, there are actually um, three parts to the proposed ending of Mark. Now, no, just work with me here. There are three parts to the proposed ending of Mark and four ways that manuscripts and translations have handled this. This will make sense in just a moment. First of all, the first way is that it ends at verse 8, and I think that's the natural ending of the book of Mark. It just ends at verse 8. They went out and they were afraid. A second possibility is the book concludes with verses 19 through 20a. If, if it's consistent in the last part of verse 20, do you see the last two sentences are in italics or either sub-bracketed under that? That's actually a second ending. That's called the shorter ending and the verses that become before that, between 9 and 20, verse A, are the longer ending. So the book ends with, nine, tw uh, uh, with verse 20A, and that last italicized section is not there. Beginning with the sentence, and they promptly reported, is another. That, that, that's called the longer ending. And then the sentence at the end of verse 20, they promptly reported comprises that one last sentence. That's the shorter ending. Some ancient manuscripts don't have 9 through 20a. They only have that last, those last two sentences attached to verse 8. It's called the shorter ending. And then some, as in your translation, end with both endings. So you have it ending in verse 8. That's one option. You have it ending in verse 20a. You have it ending uh, with just verse 20b after verse 8. And then you have all of it together, which is probably in your translation today. How in the world do we make sense of this? I want to break down an approach to the question mark at the end of Mark, and we are just going to study this together. First of all, let's look at three considerations for what to do with Mark 16, 9 through 20. What do we do with it? Three considerations. The first is this, textual issues. Textual issues. These are the internal considerations. And the first thing we'll look at is context. 
What have we said over and over in our study of God's Word? The three most important words in hermeneutics and in studying God's Word are context, 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 right? More errors are made in the study of God's Word and in wrong application by ignoring the context than any other problem. And context comes to bear here as well. Again, I do not believe that Mark wrote these verses 9 through 20, nor are these verses a part of the canon of Scripture, by the way. And before you begin a tribunal to convict me of heresy, I hold this view along with the overwhelming preponderance of evangelical scholarship and church history, and your own copy of the Bible marks that as well. So I just want you to know that this isn't a solo flight that I'm taking. Notice that these verses are, again, in brackets or are marked with a note that says they are not in the earliest and most reliable copies of Scripture. Now, when you can try contextually to connect the end of verse 8 with the following 12 verses, even the simplest reading is incredibly awkward. To go from they were afraid to Mary Magdalene and the Great Commission and whether we're in Judah or Judea or whether we're in Galilee and there's no geography uh, references mentioned. Contextually, it just won't make sense. These verses read in a way that is very disjointed from the first eight verses. So the context tells us that something is awry here. Secondly, style. Mark, throughout his gospel, is very brief in his description, but descriptions of people and places, but Mark is incredibly precise, telling us who he's talking about, telling us where he's talking about, telling us where Jesus and his band of followers are traveling. His style is to give clear markers of days and dates as well as names and places. In these verses... There are strange ascriptions to names. We'll come back to that in a moment. And no references to places. Even though we know from looking at these events that he records that they didn't happen in the same place. Some were in Judea and some were in Galilee. Thirdly, looking internally. Vocabulary. This is interesting. The vocabulary and style and structure of these 12 verses are not consistent with the rest of Mark's book. There are 18, think about this, 18 words in these verses that are not used anywhere else in the book of Mark. It's like someone else picked up a pen and started using vocabulary that was different than Mark. One example... Interestingly, the title of the Lord Jesus, which is used in verse 19, is not used anywhere else in the book of Mark. Now, it's not that Mark didn't believe that Jesus was Lord, but he never refers to him one time in the whole gospel as the Lord Jesus. And here in the next to last verse, that's the designation. Most scholars then agree with C.E.B. Cranfield, New Testament scholar who writes... In style and vocabulary, these verses are obviously non-Markan, end quote. Now, this is a man who dreams in Greek. This is a man who, who has given us so much Greek scholarship, and he said, this is, this is not the same vocabulary as has used. It's not the same style. 
Additionally, by the way, in the shorter ending at, that concludes verse 20, nine of the 34 Greek words do not appear anywhere else in Mark's gospel. And again, the style is incredibly abruptly different. It's a lot of data. It's just to say it's different in those verses. And then probably most importantly is the logic. And what I mean by that is just taking the whole thing at face value, the logic. We are not certain who added these verses, verses 9 to 20, but it's not difficult to see where the material was mined out of other New Testament passages. Take a quick and brief tour, okay? Just hold on fast, and we'll put this on the website so you can have all this later. First of all, verses 9 through 11, the appearance to Mary Magdalene. That's also recorded in John chapter 20, verses 11 to 18. Mark says, after he had risen, in verse 9, early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him, and they were, while they were mourning and weeping. Listen to John chapter 20, verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, saw the stone had already been taken away from the tomb. Luke 8, 2. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. John 20, verse 17. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go tell my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came then, announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. So the point is, these truths that are in verses 9 to 11 are mentioned elsewhere in the Scripture just with a lot more context. Whoever wrote these grabbed parts from other parts of the Bible and uh, New Testament and stuck them here. Look at Mark 16, 11. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. Well, in Luke chapter 24, verse 10, now there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the, and Mary the mother of James, and also the other women were with them, telling these things to the apostles, but these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. So a true statement with some connection to what Luke had said. Verses 12 and 13. This is the appearance to two disappointed disciples in the country. Well, if you look at, verse, at Luke chapter 24, behold, two of them were going... Well, let me read the Mark passage. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along their way to the country. And they went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Compare that to Luke chapter 24, verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Their eyes were then opened. They recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found together, found, and met together with the eleven who were saying that the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. And they began to talk about their experience on the road to Emmaus. Similar, not exact, but a summary of Luke. In verse 14, the appearance to the eleven. Mark says, afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table and he reproached them for their unbelief. Now, as we'll see in a minute, where, where, where did that happen? 
because the last thing we find out in verse 8 is they, they were supposed to go ahead in Galilee, but we find out from Luke that this did happen, but it happened in and around Jerusalem. While they were telling these things, Luke chapter 24, verse 36, Jesus himself stood in their midst and said, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do you have doubts in your heart? See my hands, see my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when they had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So Mark doesn't give us, or the writer here in Mark doesn't give us any indication as to where this happened except that it follows they were supposed to go to Galilee. Luke tells us it happened in Jerusalem. Verse 15. This is interesting. The, commission, the great commission, the commissioning of the disciples. He said to them, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Matthew 28, which we know was given up in Galilee, go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That great commission is given no context as to who it was given to or where it was spoken by the writer of these verses. Verse 16, Belief and baptism lead to salvation. Unbelief leads to condemnation. Mark 16 says, verse 16 rather says, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. John chapter 3, verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Again, truth mined out of John imported into this section. Verse 17, casting out demons. That's, well, and if you add to that, speaking in tongues, in Mark 16, excuse me, Mark 16, verse 17, we know in Acts 2, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe in verse 43. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. That happened. Did he import the experience of Acts and say that retrofit that into this section? Seemingly so. And then, verse 18. They will pick up serpents. By the way, there is a word for serpent that is just a generic term, and there's a word for serpent that is a poisonous term. This is the generic word, not the poisonous word. They will pick up serpents, and if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Perhaps that's associated with Acts 28, verse 3, where Paul gathered a bunch of sticks, laid them on the fire after the shipwreck. A viper came, that's a different word, that's the word for poisonous sake, snake, came out because of the heat, fastened itself in his hand. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. That's the only thing that might be remotely connected to the snake reference. But listen, there is no reference anywhere in Scripture to drinking deadly poison. None. No biblical reference to that happening. Verse 18, laying on of hands to heal. Well, that comes up exactly in Acts 16, 18, where Paul did that. If you go down to... Verse 19, the ascension, sitting down at the right hand of God, confirming the Lord's words by signs in Mark 16, 19 and 20. Well, that's a compilation of Luke 
24:51, Hebrews 1:3, Hebrews 2 and following uh, 2, 3 and following. The, the point is this. All of these things, except for the snakes and the poison, we'll come back to that, all of these things can be found somewhere else in Scripture with better and more descriptive context. Apparently, an editor was unsatisfied with how Mark ended in verse 8 and went and gathered up some other passages and put them at the end. As you can see, I think, these 12 verses are a patchwork of other New Testament passages, except for the snake handling and the poison. I grew up in Tennessee, where just down the street from me were churches that took this very literally and would handle rattlesnakes. Also, one quick footnote. Some who teach that salvation comes from being baptized point to this section. But remember that baptism doesn't save, and this doesn't even teach that. Condemnation comes from unbelief, not from not being baptized. So all to say we will not be doing a full exposition of these verses because they are fully explored in other passages in their own context except for the snakes and the poison. John MacArthur writes, Though these verses reflect traditions from early church history, they are not a part of the inerrant and authoritative word of God, end quote. I concur. That's the textual issues. Let's go a step further back, though, and ask ourselves about the manuscript issues. That's the external considerations. What about the texts, the Greek Koine passage or, or, or text or manuscripts or scrolls that we use to get the book of Mark in the first place? Those are the manuscripts. Very simply, you need to know this. This section is not in the earliest and best or most reliable manuscripts. It's not. Now, I know how hard it is. Think about this. I want you to... I want you to rewind the tape for a little bit. I know how hard it is for us to sit here and say something like, we want to exclude something that's in your Bible from your Bible. As difficult as that might seem and feel, think of how it must have felt in the 5th century when people had copies of God's Word without these verses and someone said, you don't have the complete Word of God, you need these verses. So we're not the first to wrestle with the inclusion or exclusion of this. This is key. Ready? These 12 verses do not appear in any Greek text or any Greek codex collection before the 5th century. The earliest and most reliable manuscripts have Mark's gospel ending after verse 8. That's why most translations end at verse 8 but include 9 to 20 in brackets with special notes marking it as a spurious text. Bruce Metzger, probably the leading textual critic of our generation, calls attention to the fact that, quote, Clement of Alexandria and Origen show no knowledge of the existence of these verses. These were early on church fathers. Furthermore, Eusebius and Jerome attest that the passage was absent from almost all Greek copies of Mark known to them. So these guys are, when Jerome was organizing the Latin Vulgate, he's looking at these dozens and dozens of, of Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, 
Very few had any reference to these verses at all, which made him say this is what's called a gloss or, or an addition. Also, it is noted, notated rather, by early scribes. We have copies with scri- of, of, of the book of Mark with scribal notations, copyists, documenting that they don't believe these verses are present in the earlier manuscripts they possess. They've not seen them. For example, we have a copy of an Armenian manuscript with a blank space after verse 8. Then before verse 9 is this line, quote, from the priest Ariston. That has led most scholars to think that the author of those verses was a man, a scribe, a copyist named Ariston. Remember, scribes were far more likely to add something than to take something away. David Garland writes, the transactional, transcriptional rather, transcriptional probability is that the longer ending would have been added to the abrupt ending in Mark's original text, end quote. All the scholarship that I consulted, literally dozens of texts and commentaries this week, all concluded the same as we are this morning, that this is not a part of God's original word. It's not a part of uh, the original book of Mark. And that should comfort you that your translators basically said so. That's why you have a notation in your Bible. So that leads us lastly to acceptance issues. Let's talk about what it would mean if someone or perhaps some of you might want to accept this as canonical, as a part of Mark, what do you have to consider? What are the content issues that you have to wrestle with? First is the question of geography. We've already hinted at this. Mark 16, 1 through 8, describes a young man dressed in a white robe. And he tells the women, remind the disciples and Peter that Jesus is risen from the dead and he will meet you in Galilee. We would expect that the next verse would talk about Galilee. However, these verses not only never mention Galilee, most of the events they record, we know from other Gospels, happened in Jerusalem. The only possible exception is verses 15 to 20, which records the words spoken by the resurrected Lord in Galilee and the Great Commission. The rest of it happens in and around Jerusalem. Even there, there's no mention of geography. And again, this reads like a stitchwork, a patchwork, a quilt of different pieces that the author is stitching from different sources. And then probably most telling is the question of Mary Magdalene's introduction. This, to me, is the, the biggest reason that I, I, I would have immediate doubts about this being from the pen of Mark. If you look at verse 9, he says, Now after, the writer says, 
Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons. That seems pretty benign at first, right? It sounds like this author is introducing us to Mary Magdalene for the first time. The problem is, Mary has just been mentioned twice, once in Mark 15, 47, one in Mark 16, 1. It would be very odd after having already talked about her twice in the previous two chapters to now introduce her as if we'd never heard of her before. And then there's this issue. The question of universal, miraculous gifting of believers. Look at verse 17. These signs will accompany those who have believed. Stop right there. It doesn't say those who are super Christians. It doesn't say the apostles. It doesn't say those who've been baptized in the Spirit, those who've been Spirit-filled or Spirit-led. It doesn't say the mature or immature. It doesn't say anything except those who believed. If we take this passage at face value, these signs will accompany those who have believed Then these signs ought to accompany, guess who? You. In my name they will cast out demons. I hope you haven't done that. In my name they will speak in new tongues. We don't believe at Mission Road Bible Church that those are, that's a gift that's still extant in the church. They will pick up serpents. Now, when my boys were growing up, we had a beautiful, bright orange corn snake that was a, that was a lot of fun that we, I guess I could say I picked up a serpent, but I don't think that's a part of this. And if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Anybody willing to go drink some Clorox this afternoon to test this verse? And lastly, they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover it. Notice the first part of this verse. These are supposedly universal ascriptions to every believer. There's no qualification. They will accompany those who have believed. Now, many of these signs do show up in the book of Acts. But the bit about snakes and poison is not normative. So I think that we don't want to argue ever from experience back to Scripture, but I think the overwhelming evidence and experience of Christians throughout the ages of church history point to the fact that these are not characteristic descriptions of our gifting. And just very quickly, the question of the shorter ending. The shorter ending are those last two verses of chapter 16. Just real, I just want to make sure, does your Bible show those in italics? Can I see a hand? Does it show those? Or noted? Okay, good. Whatever they had been told, they reported to Peter and those with him. By means of them, Jesus afterwards sent out from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. What a grandiose ending. Probably penned by someone hundreds of years after the completion of Mark. 
And again, this is called the shorter ending because that actually shows up in a very few, very few manuscripts right after verse 8 without the intervening verses. However, this last section has received acceptance by virtually zero scholars. Even those who accept what we call the textus receptus, the, the text on which the King James Bible was written, have notations about that, long, that shorter ending at the end of the longer ending. And I know that can be confusing. I just want to give you assurance that this has been fully and thoroughly researched and documented. So, we do this. How do we end our study of the book of Mark? Well, the first thing we have to ask is, why is it there? And I think the reason it's there is that there was a general dissatisfaction with the way Mark ends in verse 8. Look at verse 8. How does this sound for the final crescendo of 16 chapters of Christology? And they went out, fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Period. What is that? How do we possibly see this is the ending of Mark's gospel? Well, some, and again, my original study Bible said, well, there was probably a longer ending, a real ending, that was lost. <laughs> That's a problem if we believe that God inspires his word and preserves his word. This was intended, remember, Mark is writing to a Roman reading audience, uh, uh, the probably the church in Rome, Gentile audience, and I think he was just reflecting. They were a little freaked out that Jesus rose from the dead and they didn't know what to do. Just because he didn't finish the story doesn't mean there was a finish to the story. And again, he wasn't bound by Shakespearean climaxes and conclusions. So what do we do with this? How, how can we finish on this text? Uh, some of you might be saying, okay, I, I've, I've come to Mish Road Bible Church because these people believe the Bible and, and their Pastor Rick just told me that something that's in my Bible is not in my Bible and you're, you're having a flood of confusion and emotions. First of all, know this. It's not just Mission Road Bible Church and it's not just your pastor who thinks this about this text. This is the overwhelming preponderance of all scholarship. That's why it's marked in your Bible. But that actually points to reliability, not unreliability. It means it's been thoroughly studied. So let me, uh, let me just kind of pull a couple of thoughts together at the end here, okay? Number one, know this. The Bible has been scrutinized more than any book in history. The Bible has been scrutinized more than any book in history. And it has stood the test of time and unparalleled analysis. Let me read all that again. 
The Bible has been scrutinized more than any other book in history and it has stood the test of time and unparalleled analysis. No book has suffered under the attempt to discredit it more than God's word, more than the Bible, and it still stands. Secondly, we cannot offer the world a reliable Savior with an unreliable Bible. We cannot offer the world a reliable Savior with an unreliable Bible. The fact that your Bible, that the translators were so honest that they said, we have tested and tested and tested for two millennia these texts, and this one is spurious, this one has question marks should affirm that it's gone through the trial of analysis, not undermine. Brian Edwards concludes, how can we be sure of the truth of any issue if we are suspicious of errors anywhere? Then he says this, an airline pilot will ground his aircraft even on the suspicion of the most minor of faults because he is aware that one fault destroys confidence in the complete machine. If the history contained in the Bible is wrong, if any part of it's wrong, how can we be sure that the doctrine or moral teaching is correct? Question mark. And his conclusion is what ours is. It's completely reliable. As strange as it sounds... The question marks about this final text in Mark's gospel actually bolster my confidence in the reliability of God's word. The textual evidence points to its reliability. The internal evidence points to its reliability. The external evidence points to its reliability. The translators have been honest by putting that section with footnotes and brackets. And know this, the Bible does not shy away from its critics There are legitimate answers to any question we pose about any manuscript and any text and its reliability and its authenticity. Those questions have been asked and answered and they have stood the test of scholarship and time. So, how do you end study of this majestic book with a spurious ending? Can I suggest that the best way is to go back to chapter 1, verse 1. Back to the very beginning. Mark says, this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark has pointed us for 16 and a half chapters, 15 and a half chapters. He has pointed us to the identity and person of Jesus. And the conclusion that he gives us in the very first verse is the conclusion that the centurion made as he watched Jesus die. And the conclusion was this. He is who he says he was. He accomplished what he set out to accomplish. Salvation was garnered and gained and can be offered because of his faithfulness, because of his identity, and because of his sacrifice and resurrection. Don't let the bracketed version at the end of Mark cause you questions. 
let it show you that your Bible has been thoroughly scrutinized, evaluated, discerned, and it's completely reliable. So much so that it even gives you an internal footnote that there's part that scribes included that were not a part of the original. God's word is the word of God. God's communication is thorough and complete. God's goodness and grace has given us a book that we can trust. And the brackets in this section should give you confidence in that very word.